0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio! Aquinas on whether all Israel will be saved. A talk by Brother Reginald Chua at the Aquinas Symposium 2019. So the topic that I chose today might come across as somewhat unexpected, somewhat different, something you might not have come across in scripture before, this passage from the letter to the Romans, where St. Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And the way that I'm going to sort of go about investigating, looking at this will also be a bit different. It'll be a little bit sort of philosophical, there'll be a bit of sort of scripture analysis, so the feel of it will be a bit different. And I hope that maybe it'll give you a taste of St. Thomas's own approach to scripture as well. So, just a bit about what sort of led me to this. So, I studied philosophy at uni before I joined the Dominicans. And so, my first encounter with St. Thomas, I was telling someone earlier, was through philosophy and really falling in love with St. Thomas the philosopher. Uh, Father Thomas mentioned earlier the arguments for the existence of God, and you know th- those things really drew me into the faith and really gave my faith the foundation that I really needed to, to grow spiritually deeper, I think. One thing that I only realized after becoming a Dominican and going to seminary and taking scripture courses and then thinking, oh, I really love St. Thomas already, so maybe I'll just try and dip into what St. Thomas says on these scripture passages, since I'm studying scripture already, and then realizing my sort of picture of St. Thomas as primarily this great philosopher, this great intellect with these great arguments, that was actually a really skewed and not not the full picture of St. Thomas at all. In fact, really, St. Thomas is fundamentally a scripture scholar. So this was something that I only discovered more recently. And I just wanted to share some of that discovery of this other side of St. Thomas with you today. So the plan for today is to take a specific passage, Romans 11.26, and thus all Israel will be saved. It's kind of like a case study for how St. Thomas can be a good interpreter of Scripture and a good guide for reading Scripture. So before we just dive into it, be helpful to just have some broader context and some reasons for why we might want to, to read St. Thomas or to use St. Thomas as a guide for scripture. And so, another thing Father Thomas mentioned earlier, St. Thomas got a doctorate in theology. You might have heard that. And the term that they used back then was master of theology, magister, to be a magister, it's the equivalent of a doctorate. And according to there's this medieval scholastic saying about like what are the tasks of a magister, and there are these three tasks: to read, to dispute, and to preach. So like there's this Latin saying like legere, disputare, predicare. So it sort of sums up what it was for a um, a magister, you know, in St Thomas's time, what they did. So really interesting, right? Because what is the first primary task is legere, to read. And so I think to read, it's a sort of a technical meaning. It's kind of like, um, I think even now there are some unis, like in the UK, where um, there'll be some lecturers who are called readers, in you know a reader in literature or a reader in philosophy. And so it's not a, um, it doesn't mean that their job is they just read, but like it's a title, like it's a professor. But the specific meaning, I guess, is as a reader, St. Thomas commented on Scripture. He read Scripture and he commented on Scripture and he taught Scripture. So it's significant just in this in that little maxim. So St. Thomas's primary task as a magister was not to dispute. Dis, you know, disputation, that's the classic idea of St. Thomas: arguments, counter-arguments, intellectual reasoning. That's the that's a secondary to reading of Scripture and commenting on Scripture. The scholar John Boyle puts it well, and he says this, Although Thomas wrote a dozen commentaries on various works of Aristotle, he never taught Aristotle in the classroom. Likewise, the two great Summas that he wrote, the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Summa Theologiae, they were private works of study. Thomas never taught them. What Thomas taught in his classroom as a master of theology was Scripture. So one thing that shows, this quote, it shows that Aquinas' Scripture commentaries, they're serious academic works of theology. Father James was talking about seriousness. This is serious academic theology. So he taught them at the university level, and there are lots of them. I won't even try and list, there's so many, you know, the um, Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew, tons of letters of St. Paul, quite a few books of the Old Testament. He commented on lots of scripture. And all of them would have been taught in university classes. And so this is a whole other side to what Father Thomas mentioned earlier, the catena aurea, if you remember that, you know, that project that Thomas did. And it wasn't that project wasn't so much an original work, that was more compiling um, what other people said on scripture. However, Thomas's bread and butter, you could say, as a uh, teacher in the uni, was to provide original commentary on scripture. Just also to emphasize that, emphasizing this serious academic side, that's not to say that Aquinas wasn't, um, he was like a pure academic. I think the whole distinction between academic theology or philosophy and um, the sort of, you know, person in the pews, layman sort of approach, that's a, a, quite a modern distinction. There's a great quote from the Thomistic scholar Jean-Pierre Torrell, and this is what he says, the people of the Middle Ages saw no opposition between the scientific teaching of theology and its pastoral application. On the contrary, the first was seen as the normal preparation for the second. So that's a significant quote. It shows that you know this picture of St. Thomas as um, this sort of abstract academic theologian, that's not really correct. St. Thomas was you know necessarily involved in the lives of people through preaching, and so his theology is very much pastoral theology. So just to sum up there, I'm just suggesting some reasons for why Aquinas should be seen as a guide for Scripture. So his primary professional task as a theologian was to read, comment, and teach Scripture. And he did this, of course, using all of his skills as a great theologian, you know, a master thinker, a great philosopher. He brought all of that to bear on his reading of Scripture, of course. But it's also there's also this pastoral side to him. So it's a really rich approach to Scripture that he has. So now, I want to just dive more into a specific passage, Romans 11.26. You can think of this as a a case study. And why this passage? There are two reasons for me that especially drew me to this. So one thing is that St. Thomas is especially sort of in his element, you could say, when he is Reading St. Paul. So it's quite true that St. Thomas, he really is a master philosopher and theologian. Um, and the thing is that St. Paul himself is also perhaps the most theologically sophisticated of all the authors, the human authors in scripture. He's a you know, he has all these great systematic theological insights. So there's another uh, scholar of St Thomas, his name is Pim Valkenberg, and he has noted that for Thomas Aquinas, he considers Paul as the first and foremost of all theologians. So, so St Thomas's theology, you know, from that quote, it's actually very, very aligned with St Paul. And on, you know, from the on the flip side, if we want to understand St Paul, you know, he's so central in the scriptures. St. Thomas is such a great guide for us because St. Thomas was a man who really took Paul as a model for theology. Another reason why this passage is really interesting is Romans 11.26. This is actually a passage which has been hugely debated through the history of the church. Not just like in modern times, there's a lot of debates among, between Catholics, Protestants, all different denominations. They have their own sort of approaches to this passage. But also, even in medieval times, in the early church, you've got different views. So what's interesting about looking at how St. Thomas approaches this is well, one thing, it's going to shed light on a difficult passage for us. You know, It's going to shed light on understanding a puzzling part of Scripture. But I'm going to suggest it actually also shows how original Saint. Thomas can be when he's reading Scripture um, he's a really brilliant reader of Scripture so the first thing I need to do you know before just diving into this passage is to just give a bit of a context of the letter to the Romans you know in which this passage comes from so just a little summary okay well, There's so much to the letter to the Romans, so I can only hope to give really some scattering of points, you could say. So, one thing that's quite clear from the beginning of the letter to the Romans is there's this sort of question of what is the relationship between Israel, you know, the Jewish people, and Christianity. You know, you've got this new, you know, Christ has come, Christ has preached the gospel, and part of that gospel. Gentiles, non-Jews, they're now being accepted into the faith. And so you've got these non-Jewish Christians. And then the question is like, "Ooh, how do we relate to the Jews? Because the Jews were the chosen people, right? You know, you've got the whole Old Testament. These are the chosen people. So we, are we also the chosen people now? Or are they no longer, you know, what's this whole relationship there? So this is a big question. And so the very beginning of Romans, St. Paul sort of dives in and he gives what looks like an answer to this question because he says, he's proclaiming a gospel which brings the power of salvation, quote, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So this already makes it sound as if the Jews have a kind of privilege in Christianity, you know, the Jew first and then also the Greek, right? So, and, and you should think of this as the default position because you know the Jews are the chosen people of God, right? This is what you've seen through all you know, Old Testament. And the Gentiles are the Greeks, the pagans. But then you keep going in the letter of the Romans and then you sort of realise that that isn't really Paul's point. Because St. Paul goes on to say, he says many, many times, that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Romans 3.22, for example. No distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And then he gives all these reasons for why there is no distinction. So one big reason is everyone is sinful before God. You know, the Jews are sinners, Gentiles are sinners, so there's no privilege, you know, we're equally sinners. Second reason, there's this thing called justification. You know, what is it that justifies us before God? And what St. Paul makes really clear, and, you know, this is sort of soaked into just basic christianity now but you know st paul it really makes it clear in this passage that it is by faith we are saved and so you know what is key about that point is that if it's faith which saves us what certainly doesn't save us is just being a jew right just you know your sort of ancestry or who your parents are or where you've come from or anything other than just faith in jesus so that's another strong reason for just showing how there is no distinction between jew and gentile there's no sort of there's no way in which one is better than the other. And then you keep going in the letter of the Romans, Paul then goes on to sort of make it even more rhetorically strong. So he says, you know, there is no prerogative for the Jew to boast. You know, Jews cannot boast. There's, there's no basis for which a Jew can boast about, you know, I am from the chosen people, and so on and so on. And then he talks about the Jews as, um, their, their Jewish heritage is through the flesh, you know but it is through the spirit that our salvation comes so he's got all this language for really emphasizing this no distinction thing so this becomes a problem right because and the problem is most of the jews in paul's time and now they don't accept christ right the jews don't accept christ most of them so that's an uncomfortable point because by the logic of the gospel it looks like the chosen people are now. Not only is there no basis for them to be to boast, but they're actually now, you know, um, sort of underprivileged compared to Christians. You know, Christians now have salvation, and the Jews have somehow lost salvation because they don't accept Christ. So suddenly, the Jews have gone from being privileged to now being excluded from God's plan, almost. So you can see here, can you, hoping you can see this tension in the letter to the Romans, because God has promised stuff to the people of Israel, hasn't he? You know, this is, you know the, this, all these covenants, the promises. And so in what sense are the Jews still the chosen people of God? If, you know, has God forsaken his promises to the Jews? Has he abandoned his people because of this sort of fact that the Jews have not accepted Christ. So this is the old background, you know, in the start of the letter, to, you could you could think of this passage, this part of Romans, Romans chapter 11, this is really where St. Paul is trying to resolve this tension. How do we understand the Jewish people in relation to Christians? And so he makes this ultimate claim, it sort of all builds up, and then he says, all Israel will be saved, right? This is the passage that we're really interested in. So how do we interpret this? So one way of looking at it is it's like, it seems to be reaffirming that traditional idea of Israel, you know, Israel as the chosen people, because he's saying, all Israel will be saved. That's a really positive thing about Israel. But there are different interpretations of what that actually means. So that's where the scriptural debate comes in. And so just to clarify, the problems and the different interpretations, they're not due to the text, it's not like, some people are misinterpreting the Greek text or something like that. Um, so, you know, there are scripture scholars, there's this uh, one scholar, Christopher Zakali, and so what he's shown is that all the major different interpretations, the, the conflicting interpretations of this passage, Romans 11:26, they're all legitimate interpretations of the Greek text, you know, like the, the very language makes open these different interpretations. So the question is which one really fits, because you can't choose them all, they're, they're conflicting with each other. So now I'm just going to look at um, a couple, hopefully, maybe three, and how Aquinas fits into this debate. So this is, you know, um, it's going to be a debate that is not just modern scripture scholars, but also um, in the tradition. And so how does Aquinas, can we see Aquinas as contributing, like a way of understanding this in a satisfying way? So one view, so this view you probably won't, it might just come across as weird because it's, and sometimes it's called the two covenant view. And so this view is that when St. Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's reaffirming the old covenant. You know, the covenant by which God has said that Israel will be saved throughout the Old Testament. And this interpretation says that this salvation, this covenant is different from the Christian covenant. So there's like two covenants, the covenant to the Christians and then the covenant to the Jews. And so here in this passage, Paul is reaffirming the covenant to the Jews. Um, So yes, Christians are saved through Christ, but then all Israel will also be saved because of the old covenant, even if they don't accept Christ. So this should strike you as not really the right this can't be the right interpretation, right? Because Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, um, and then you've also got the, the fact that the very start of the, of the letter to the Romans, St. Paul says, the gospel I'm preaching is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's like, it's one gospel. It's not like there's one gospel for, um, one gospel for Christians and then one gospel for Jews. But there are a lot of people who defend that interpretation. So I'm not really engaging with this. You can imagine these debates, they go on and on. So just to flag this, there is this position. And then think of another view now. This is also a very sort of popular interpretation that scripture scholars have of this text, which is, and you could call it the eschatological view. This is just the word that they use. So eschatology, that means the end times, right? so in the future, something that's going to happen in the future, eschatology. So the eschatological interpretation is saying, well, if St. Paul says all Israel will be saved, what he means is there's going to be this future event where all Israel is going to be saved, like something, this miracle is going to happen in the future, even though now all the Jews, uh, they don't accept Christ, but maybe St. Paul is prophesying that there will be this future event where through some miracle, the Jews will all convert to Christ. So this view is, um, it might look appealing because it preserves the fact that there's one gospel, right? And that the Jews aren't saved through some other covenant apart from Christ, they're saved through Christ. So that's a good thing. However, there's a criticism or a problem for this view which comes from, a very well-known scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican bishop, and this is his criticism. He says that this view seems to fit very badly with Romans nine to ten, the passages just before. In in that in those passages, following Galatians and Romans one to eight, Paul makes it abundantly clear that there is no covenant membership, and consequently, no salvation for those who simply rest on their ancestral privilege." So just to put that point in simpler language, it's like if you, if you think, think St. Paul is predicting that the Jews are all going to be saved in the future, even if it's through Christ, that still seems to be suggesting that it's sort of giving Israel this privilege you know, based on their ancestry. You know, it's a, it's a prophecy about Israel, the Jewish people. And it's a prophecy that something really good's going to happen to them. You know, they're all going to convert to Christ because they're Jews. So. So the, the problem, I guess, is that this interpretation, it doesn't seem to really explain how this, you know, this good, uh, this good future event for the Jews isn't some kind of ancestry based privilege. Right Because if it is, then that seems to be going against Saint. Paul's overarching point in the Romans that there is no privilege you know there, you know there is no Jew or Greek in Christ there is no reason for Jews to boast so just to summarize you know we've been looking at you know and hopefully this is just giving you a sense of why this passage is difficult to interpret and come up with a satisfying understanding so the two Covenant view it's saying. The Jews will be saved, but through a Jewish covenant, not through Christianity. And then you've got this eschatological view, it's saying, well, maybe St. Paul is saying the Jews will be saved through this miraculous future mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. And both of these views, they've got problems. Good, good, I've got time. Third view. So let's look at a third view now. This is... We're going to call this the ecclesial view, like ecclesia, the church. So it's a church, this idea of a church. So this view, so in contrast to the other two views, this is actually the sort of the more traditional view. Like a lot of church fathers have this view. Um, St. Augustine is the most prominent interpreter of this view. Those other two views, they're more like modern scripture scholars. So this view says, St. Paul isn't actually talking about the Jewish people when he says all Israel will be saved. On this view, all Israel will be saved, what that actually means is that the new Israel, you know, all the true believers in Christ, they will be saved. That's what this passage means. So on this interpretation, just to clarify what it's actually saying, so on this view, the claim that thus all Israel will be saved, this is not referring anymore to some future event of salvation. Rather, it's talking about the ongoing process of salvation, of salvation history. You know, um, when the Israelites, you know, were first called by God and then they harden their hearts and then they fall away and then they come back. And then you've got the entry of Gentiles into the church because Jesus has come and then the Jews reject Christ. And all of that is part of salvation history. And it's all part of the plan of salvation that God has for us. And so on this interpretation, When Paul says, and thus all Israel will be saved, what he means is that, you know, thus by this whole historical plan that God has unfolded in history, thus is all of the new Israel, thus is the church saved, if that makes sense. So he's basically not making a claim about something that's going to happen in the future. It's just, this is how our salvation has been achieved, you know, um, as the church. So as I said, this is the traditional view. You know, this is St Augustine's interpretation, and many church fathers, medieval theologians, and the Anglican bishop that I mentioned earlier, N.T. Wright, he often takes fairly Catholic interpretations of Scripture, and that's this is his interpretation as well. And so from this, you know, from a scriptural point of view, actually, it's not like it's going against Scripture, even though it looks like a real reinterpretation of the passage. Um, Actually, St. Paul, often in other parts of his own writings, he does have these multiple distinct meanings for the term Israel. So, you know, sometimes he talks about the true Israel and the false Israel and Israel according to the flesh. And so he's got all these different. So it's not like it's it's not like you're trying to, like, um, read into scripture something that isn't there. Like there is a basis for this in St. Paul, although, you know, you're taking a little bit of a leap at the same time. So you might be thinking, okay, this is quite an attractive view, you know, it's Catholic tradition, St. Augustine, you know, um, and then it's some scriptural support, so maybe this is like the good view. But then, no, there were problems, there were problems. So one problem, and this is for, you know, um, as Catholics, this might be especially be a problem. So Vatican documents, like since Vatican II, have actually explicitly rejected this interpretation. So the Vatican II document Nostra Aetate. It doesn't explicitly talk about this passage, but there's a recent document released in 2015 by the Vatican's Commission for Religious Relations with the Jews. And so it offers this sort of um, statement on the Jewish people, and it also offers a, a kind of a definitive interpretation of the Vatican II documents on the Jews, you know, Nostra Aetate. And in this Vatican document, this commission, it rejects what it calls replacement theory or supersessionism. Supersessionism is basically this idea that somehow the Jews have been superseded by Christians, right? Like Christians have sort of taken over, we've superseded the Jews, and so we've sort of taken their place. You know, the promises that were once made to the Jews, we sort of take those promises now because we're the new Israel, they're the old Israel, we're the new Israel. So this this is what the Vatican document says. It says that supersessionism was accepted by many of the church fathers and it steadily gained favor until in the Middle Ages it represented the standard theological foundation of the relationship with Judaism. And then the document goes on to conclude this view is no longer acceptable. It says, a replacement or supersession theology which sets against one another two separate entities, a church of the Gentiles and the rejected synagogue whose place it takes, is deprived of its foundations. So um, I don't want to hang too much on this Vatican document because that it, it's not. I'm not even sure if it's you know what. It's not like it's not Vatican to itself. This is a document that was released. You know, it's on a lower level, so it's not. You know, you're not necessarily you know bound. It's not like an infallible document, but it's something. And more generally, there are still these conflicts with scripture. You know. One thing that Paul says elsewhere is that God's gifts to Israel are irrevocable. You know, and it's it does sound like on this interpretation you're saying the Jews have sort of, you know, God did make these eternal promises to the Jews, but somehow they're sort of they've been left behind now because the new Israel has taken over. So, my point so far has been there are these lots of interpretations, even the traditional interpretation is it's not like there's a clear Way of seeing the true meaning of this scripture passage. So now here we come to Aquinas. So, what side is Aquinas going to take? You know, what is he going to do here? Um, so, you might think that St. Thomas would be following St. Augustine and the church fathers, you know, that traditional view. Maybe he's got like some great way of supporting it. However, interestingly, on this passage in his commentary on Romans, he breaks from that tradition. So, he endorses a view that basically no one else endorses, but which corresponds most closely to this modern eschatological view, this idea that there's going to be this miracle in the future, all the Jewish people are going to convert. And so, you know, what he says is that when Paul says that all Israel will be saved, what he means is that all the Jewish people will truly be saved in the future by grace, and that's it. You know, that's just his interpretation. There is more. So Aquinas also does, and this is where I think St. Thomas has something really interesting to contribute. He actually says things that, that resolve those problems that are raised by these modern scripture scholars, like N.T. Wright. You know, you remember that there was this objection and it was basically saying like, if we're going to say that the Jews are all going to convert in the future and they're going to be saved by grace, isn't that some kind of, like, isn't that God now, no longer sort of being impartial. Now he's just giving privileges to the Jews again. Like, where is this, you know, what about St. Paul saying, you know, that there is you know, no reason for the Jews to boast? Like, where's that all going? So here's how St. Thomas, he actually deals with this specific issue. And I'm going to quote from a passage from Aquinas's commentary on Romans 11:28. a passage just a few passages later. And in this passage, the text says that the Israelites are beloved by God for the sake of their forefathers, right? And, you know, so the, the Jews are beloved by God for the, sake of, um, for the sake of all the forefathers, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. This is what Aquinas, how Aquinas reflects on it. He says, the Jews are most dear to God for the sake of the forefathers because he chose the descendants on account of their forefathers' grace. This does not mean that the merits of the forefathers were the cause of the eternal election of the descendants. Rather, it is that God from all eternity chose the fathers and the sons in such a way that the children would obtain salvation on account of the fathers. Through an outpouring of divine grace and mercy, the sons would be saved on account of the promises made to the fathers." This is how I'm reading that passage. What is Aquinas saying there? Well, just remember that objection. You know, the objection is basically, how is a promise of salvation to the Jews, not some kind of privilege that you're giving the Jews, that's you know, a, 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 an ethnic privilege that you're giving them? And Aquinas' reply is basically that it's not because of any kind of ethnic privilege that God is giving them grace. Rather, it's because of God's grace that the Jews are receiving an ethnic privilege. If that makes sense, so there is a privilege that is being given to the Jews, but it's not a privilege that God is giving because of their Jewishness. It's because of it's because of God's grace, because of God's mysterious grace. So, in other words, there is a mystery here, but what we can know from the mystery, according to Aquinas, is that there is no like the ultimate reason for the salvation of the Jews is not because of something special about being Jewish basically. It's just the mystery of God. God is going to do this, and we sort of, you know, this is part of God's mysterious plan of salvation. So this response is actually, it's a theme throughout all of St. Thomas's writing, like the mystery of grace, um, and it's also very in line with St. Paul. St. Paul always talks about this term, the sovereignty of God's grace. You know, God is sovereign, and we cannot question God's choices, his decisions, even if they really seem mysterious. And this also, you know, it really sort of, um, it's it's a very positive understanding of the Jewish people. You know, if we really follow St. Thomas here, we, St. Thomas is saying all the Jewish people will be saved through grace. You know, he's, he's, he's affirming that and that's quite a remarkable thing. And so this helps us to understand also all the positive things that Paul says about the Jews, you know. One famous passage from Romans is that to the Jews belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. Right? All of these attached to the Jewish people on account of their Jewish heritage. And one further thing that Paul is saying now is that the Jews, you know, as a as a people will be saved through grace. So what are some, so that's basically all I wanted to say about, you know, we've we've gone into quite a lot of detail and we've gone into, you know, lots of different arguments and we've sort of looked at it from all these angles. So what's the takeaway? So one thing that I want to suggest is that St. Thomas is actually a very independent sort of thinker. You know, he was actually prepared to reject St. Augustine. He was prepared to reject many of the church fathers in favor of an original interpretation of scripture. So that's something that often um, it doesn't come across. Often, often St. Thomas is thought of, and all the scholastics, they're sort of thought of as, oh, they're all these people, they just sort of followed what St. Jerome said, and then St. Jerome followed what, I don't know, St. Cyril said, and there's this sort of like tradition, and no one deviates from it until sort of modern times. But actually, I think what this shows is there was actually a lot of originality, like you know, lots of people breaking new ground in a sense. And so St. Thomas isn't just like a, someone who really synthesized all the great thinkers before him. He actually had lots of original sort of thoughts of his own as well. Another thing is that I think it shows the value of thinking of St. Thomas as a scripture scholar, you know, really as a scripture scholar, not just as a theologian or a philosopher or a spiritual writer. He is all of those things, but fundamentally, he taught scripture, right? So he was a scripture scholar. So I hope this sort of exploration of a particular passage shows the sort of depth of his thought on scripture. And in other, just a final thought, you know, we're talking about scripture and hopefully an appreciation, I think, the more that we see St. Thomas as a scripture scholar, the more I think St. Thomas can be seen as someone to use as a starting point for like a conversation with a Protestant, for example. You know, often St. Thomas is thought of as the great sort of, you know, the doctor of the Catholic Church and of all these encyclicals as like, you know, if you're Catholic, you have to believe St. Thomas. But actually, St. Thomas is also a great commentator on scripture and he can solve lots of these difficult, gnarly problems in scripture, which a of Protestants are thinking about as well. And so St. Thomas can be, you can think of St. Thomas as an, a great ecumenical figure, not just as a great Catholic thinker. So, I might leave it there. Thank you. That was Brother Reginald Chua with Aquinas on whether all Israel will be saved. This talk was recorded at the 2019 Aquinas Symposium in Sydney, organized by the Dominican Province of the Assumption. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org. .au you?